Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Okay, um, hello and welcome, guys. It's been a wonderful year for uranium investors. In fact, Christmas came early for uh, most uranium investors. And so to that end, and on that theme, we have put ourselves three wise men uh, together to tell us a little bit about what they think about what's going on and perhaps a little bit about the, the future. So um, I'd like, just like to welcome uh, Greg Hall, CEO. We've got Keith Bowes, MD at Lotus Resources, and also Wayne Healy, CEO of Peninsula Energy. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you? Very good, thank you, man. I appreciate Great. the opportunity Thanks. to be here. Doing right. well, thank you. So we've got we've got a bunch of Aussies uh, on here. Although Wayne is joining us from the US of A, so some of you are up late and, some, and one of you is up early. So appreciate that. Um, let, I just wanted to get you guys together because there are three stories I particularly enjoyed uh, listening to when we spoke. Um, and I want you know people to kind of get a little bit more, um, you know, share a little bit more time with you. Um, the events of recent weeks with Sprott Physical Uranium Trust has burst this this uh, sector into energy and into the consciousness of investors, generalist investors. It's nothing that I think any of us on this conversation foresaw, but as a consequence, are you having to adjust your strategies? So I'm going to start, I'm going to start with um, Greg, if I may. Well, thanks, Matt. Uh, look, in, in regard to Alligator Energy, as you're aware, we have everything from Greenfield's exploration to an early stage development project in Sandfire, which we are now restarting since it's dormancy for about 10 years. So we've already set, set some timelines for the initial drilling, resource expansion drilling, enhance the resource to indicate a status, scoping study plan for early next year, uh, on that basis, and then some enhanced field leach work after that. So we're, we're the earliest stage project of, of the three you're talking to today, of course. But, but in, in regard to the, the run-up in the market, it's re-emphasised the fact that there will be room for new startup projects to come back on board, as well as restart projects and, and of course, enhancement of projects which are already running. Last time there was a uranium boom and a run-up when existing products really tried to ramp up their production from where they were operating, they all floundered a bit. It took, a, took time. It takes time to get projects moving and underway. And each of the players on, uh, on your call here today know that, and we've all been starting to prepare at a very early stage. Sandfire is an early stage development. We need to get it to a scoping stage and then enhance with field leach work and detailed feasibility work to get it to a potential operating phase. Approvals will take at least three to three and a half years in South Australia, even though it's an experienced jurisdiction, it's still going to take that time at least to get approval. So we know the timeline. We can fast track some of the work, uh, but we, we certainly are focusing on the key area of building up our team, getting on the ground for drilling uh, in, imminently, and then, and then working from there. Right, and what about you, Keith? Plans changed? Yeah, I think I think from Lotus's perspective, I mean, obviously, as the listeners and everyone knows, we've got the Kalakera project, which is located in Malawi. It's been on care and maintenance since uh, 2014. So our strategy since we've um, bought the project of Paladin last year, we haven't really changed anything at the moment. We've just announced the start of our feasibility study. So that was effectively in the time frame that we initially anticipated. I think of anything in terms of speeding things up, I don't think it's going to be in the short term. I think we're going to wait until we see the results or the majority of the results coming out of our feasibility study. 
you know, if we've got a lot of confidence in those results and we're obviously seeing the price still increasing, uh, to be honest, I don't think the 50 or $51 that it got to last week is quite high enough yet for us to make a final investment decision. But if we were to get some higher numbers beginning of next year, I think we may then look at doing some more um, upfront engineering and try and accelerate the refurbishment of the existing facility, perhaps while we're still trying to negotiate some of our uh, financing arrangements. That may be where we decide to accelerate the program. But at the moment, we're keeping to our strategy. We've got a feasibility study coming out the middle of next year, and that's our main focus at the moment. Right. So, so you want to see some consistency with that pricing, and obviously with spot, you know, start to go a little even, even, even higher. Yeah, I think one of the things we recognise is that obviously, we, I mean, everyone talks about the spot price going up, and it's down to what forty-five or forty-four dollars uh, today, but the term price hasn't really tracked that yet. The term price always seems to lag behind the spot price, and we haven't seen the term price take a significant uptick yet. And um, we would want to be able to sign term contracts uh, to be able to make a final um, investment decision. And I think we want to see those uh, term price contract or those term contract prices increase before we would actually do anything else. So the spot price is fantastic. Absolutely great to see. Uh, we're keeping a very close eye on the term contracts. Yeah, I mean, nice, nice measure response because your your experience, um, pr- you know, previous experience in in this sector. We'll come back onto term contracting in a second. But Wayne, just answer, answer that the same same question if you don't mind. In terms of has your strategy evolved, changed, or sped up in any way? Yeah, so Peninsula has maintained a high state of project readiness throughout this downturn. Um, Keith is right; long term contracts are going to be the driver for. Um, restarts and for new projects. And one of Peninsula's advantages is that we do have long-term contracts that extend out into the year 2030. So we've been anticipating resumption of production all along. And we've been working on um, you know, maintaining our project with a high state of readiness for, for operations again. And we've been developing new tech for the project. So uh, you know, the, the up, um, upsizing of the spot price or the increase in the spot price today, very exciting for us because it, it, it drives more impetus to uh, push a project um, restart button sooner. Uh, you know, because we'll be able to to you know, produce excess material either for the spot or for for new um, contract demand that comes along. So, if I if I listen to the three of you, it's very conservative, cautious language that you're using. If I look at the market, and you guys have been the beneficiary of some real, you know highs in terms of your share price um, and, and it's come off in the last couple, couple of weeks. But are those the moments that get even you must get excited about a little bit? Do you want to get, do you want to go for that, Greg? Yeah, look, uh, you're right. There, there, while there's buoyancy in the market, it creates opportunities, but in, in particular, it attracts uh, investor interest to the business. It attracts people to the long-term market supply and demand story and fundamentals, so you get more education in the financial uh, and investment industry. So that, that's where I like the fact that you get these, you know, you get these blip-ups now and then where, as things move. So it attracts that interest, attracts that attention, which really does bode well for the future as, as we all advance our projects and look for those investment decisions. So I think that's one good thing about those run-ups. The, the, the second thing is it does create an opportunity for, in particular, to, to get um, attract new and interested staffing into your projects because we're in a recruitment phase at the moment as we build up our team. 
So that's been very opportunistic because that attention allows you to, to get uh, access to good people, which is retaining advantage of. Um, there will be these ups and downs. I've been there before. You, you'll see some steady growth, I think, in, in all the companies involved in this business because uh, the spot market is driving the interest and sentiment. I totally agree with the other two. It is the term uranium business which is starting to... We're just starting to get the whispers that the um, utility buyers are definitely paying attention now. So let's let's see where that goes. Okay, Keith? I think there's one other interesting uh, point for me is that, I mean, I've been in the industry for a, a few years now, and I suppose we've always spoken to the, I suppose the more the general invest, um, investor rather than a specialist investor, that, you know, the uranium market can turn very, very quickly. And I think they've looked at us with a bit of a, you know, you guys don't know what you're talking about. But I think the last couple of weeks has really shown that actually it does happen. And I think the general general investors starting to take a more serious look at uranium, realizing that we haven't been talking, you know. So we've yeah, there's some real there's some real opportunities there. And I think the guy the guys have started starting to look at those different things. But what, do, what do you think? What do you think is driving that? Do you think that this uh, the whole social media revolution, you know, compared to the last cycle, is changing the speed at which things move and also shifting the control? We've we've seen the you know Reddit groups uh, and 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 similar um, you know Telegram <laughs> pump and dump groups, or you know unashamedly unashamedly uh, pushing these big ideas onto the unsuspecting general audience. I mean, is that, is that good for the industry or bad for the industry? I mean, what do you think, Wayne? Uh, well, clearly to me, it's the crux investor audience that's been driving this, um, not, not the generalists. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> nevertheless, um, uh, I think the risk with the generalists is they can be in quick and out quick and we can see big spikes up and down for, for our share prices. Uh, you know, the enthusiasm of the generalist is, is not founded in a, in a, in a steep education. It's, it's founded in more in, in the momentum of the trade at the moment. Uh, it, going back, Matt, to, to the previous question you had, you know, to me, uh, what's, what's really exciting me about, about the, the current moment in time is that, you know, for so long, we've been, been telling audiences the supply-demand fundamentals are really the primary catalyst for what drives the long-term price. And now with uranium price momentum in the spot market being driven by physical purchases that are being locked up into a long-term storage type of arrangement, we're seeing more and more of the available and mobile supply just disappearing into that void. So the fundamentals of our market are stronger and being proven um, you know, the messages that we as the CEOs of these companies have been speaking for so long that supply and demand is so important and we had some oversupply. Now we see that that oversupply situation is really drying up that, that um, you know, 10 million pounds of purchases by one actor can, can change the market dramatically. That excites me because I think we're really on the cusp of, of a long-term uh, opportunity for the uranium producers. Yeah, those have been, that's a strong fundamental move. Buying up the mobile inventory or sucking up the mobile inventory is, is really healthy. But the, with regards to the social media component, do you think those are, are temporary things? They are easily distracted and they'll move on to the next uh, thing. We've, we've seen the price come off. Um, I think the social media uh, uh, folks are here to stay. Uh, I don't think that, um, 
you know, the investors who use uh, Twitter and YouTube and, you know, all of all of the modern social media tools to get their information are going to go away anytime soon. That's a large audience. And, and uh, I appreciate that it's attracting more attention to uranium. I don't think that's going to change. So, Greg, how do you adjust your strategy if that if what Wayne says is true? Well, look, um, in, in terms of the, uh, advancing a project, there's, there's certain things you have to do, and I, I agree with Keith. If you have a strategy on you've got to go stepwise through it. You've got to de-risk the project as you go. In our case, we also want to expand it a little. So, so that, those sort of things have to stay. In, in terms of how you market yourself going forward, definitely um, you have to be honest about the price you need and the contracts you need to be able to get into production. Um, certainly, all we all need ultimately longer-term contracts with your nuclear utilities to do that. We've tried to help shield ourselves a, a little and make sure that we can we can advance at the right pace by doing our deal with Traxxas Global Trading Group. So we've got that significant support mechanism there and marketing agents. So that that helps us, uh, and we did that early, very early for a company like us to to be able to move uh, with confidence, if you say, like going forward. And so we, we've, we've used the momentum to get a bit of support like that. But in terms of the social media, I mean, we're on social media. We all are. And we're using it. And we're making sure our stories out there to people who prefer to see it like that. But it's also a great medium to exchange stories very quickly and very easily about the industry, what's happening here, who's doing this, someone's doing that. All of a sudden now there's a small modular reactors being looked at in Poland with a group of people together. So... The, the real mechanism uh, for the social media, I think, is being able to get those advancing stories and rapid stories about the industry expansion out there fast. And that's a real advantage to the social media trick, I think. Um, there's always players which are going to push and pump and dump stocks. They're, they're going to do that no matter what. Whether it's on social media or it's by word of mouth, that'll happen. I don't think that will change in social media, but I see the advantages of it are really there and worth us all engaging in. So Keith, if when mentioned the you know the supply demand gap, and we've seen that the, the you know most companies come on here and tell us about the supply demand gap and whatever commodity we've seen it in nickel, seen it in copper, we've seen it in lithium, and yet there's this divergence happening at the moment in the market between equity, so the 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 commodity prices and the equity prices. What what's are you concerned about that? Because I, I know you guys have had a, a couple of good runs this year. Well, all of you have had a couple of good runs this year at the beginning of the year, and then obviously recently with Sput doing its thing. But it, it's come off a bit. Do you do you th- see people collectively nervous about the economy? Is that going to affect um, this kind of uh, recovery that the uranium uh, sector is going through at the moment? How, how do you interpret it? Yeah, I'm not overly concerned to be to be honest about it at the moment, Matt. I think. Um I mean, obviously, you've got the issues. I mean, in China at the moment, I think they've had both that was it Evergrande has uh, spooked the market a little bit. They've also got issues with their power and all that kind of stuff, which is maybe they're now forecasting lower GDP growths and all these types of things. And I think that generally affects the market. One of the things that I think that we picked up on is maybe last year when the uh, uranium price was still relatively low, we were seeing a lot of uh, share price uh, increases which seems to be on the back of the investors having more confidence in the price, uh, in the uranium price moving up. And maybe there's just a little bit of a correction of that going on at the moment. And that maybe some of the investors had already anticipated a $50 or $45 per pound price when they were buying the stocks up. And now that it's got there, maybe there's a bit of profit taking or something like that. 
So I'm not overly concerned about it at the moment. I think there's always going to be ups and downs as the market. But I think as Wayne has mentioned, I mean, you know, you've got to look at the long-term supply and demand. And we know that that's going to be good for the projects and good for the uranium price moving forward. How do you, how do you see it, Wayne? Do you, do you agree with what Keith says? I, I do. Um, it, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm pretty uh, geared into the long-term um, the spot market is 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 going is going to drive the long term. Um, you know the util, utilization of the spot market to to clean up the 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 excess supply means that more and more material um, at, is being put. Um, you know, future production is being put into the market into contracts um, and in you know into sales already. So so um, you know this is all in a very positive. Um, uh, developments. Uh, I don't see it any other way. So, Greg, I just want to ask. Um, you, you're one of the, the the earlier stage companies that we've we've spoken to uh, in the uranium space, and clearly the the beneficiaries of this recovery at the moment are going to be producers and near term producers. How does a how does a early stage exploration play uh, deal with the market as it is today? Is it just look to the future and do just manage what you can? Well, look, we've, we've got um, some resources in the ground which have had an initial range of testing done on them some 10 years ago. The advantage that, that we see we have is the high-grade portion of those resources are reasonably well understood but have to be enhanced. But what's changed is the technology. So, so the, the ISR technology around um, extraction and effective extraction of uranium in saline solutions has advanced dramatically over about 10 or 12 years. So where there was a struggle 10 years ago to try to make some of these uh, ISRs, you know, salinity issues in ISR, they now seem to be resolved. The test work that's been done both on, for example, Boss Resources Project and in other projects has shown we're about to do that test work early next year. And that, that will, we think, enhance that, that initial higher-grade centre of the product deposit we have. We have plans then to expand into the other areas which are underexplored but have evidence of, of uh, additional structural related um, and channels up into, into the sediments. So, so we think we can expand that. But the good thing is, ISR project, as, as, uh, as you're aware, is the style of project that is very minimal to a small company to take forward. In the last um, uranium boom, there were there were really only a few projects, four or five projects when that started, and two of them were, were conventional. The one Keith has, and uh, and the other one, the Paladin has, and the rest ISR. So, so it creates that opportunity for a company like ours to advance. Now, I think there'll be the market support for us to do that. Certainly, we're behind the timeline compared to to other projects like uh, like the PSC on the call. But the, the, we have a great belief that the run-up in uranium price this time will be reasonably sustained. The, the, the simple reason is you're now seeing a change in the European Union and the democratic government in the USA that you never had before in terms of clean energy market. So you've now got a different driver than we had before. And, and I think that's going to make a, a difference to the fundamentals going forward. I mean, Keith, what, what would you, I mean, first of all, I mean, the, the whole, the whole greenification of a lot of stories in, in the market, it, 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 some of it feels real and some of it doesn't. You guys genuinely can make that claim. We, we, we're seeing lots of politicians talking the game of nuclear as, as a clean energy solution. We're seeing energy prices spiking up, certainly across Europe. I don't know what, the, what what's happening in Australia or, or the US, but, um, there's, there's a real, I think there is significant backing for this where there, there once was not. 
What would you say, though, to investors who are perhaps still a little bit unsure about investing in in uranium, uh, Keith? I mean, because it's it's had a sort of check, checkered past. You know, not everyone's for it. Uh, do you think there's still a big audience out there who are just sitting on the fence, waiting to see how how this plays out? Yeah, I think there's still there's still a lot of people out there that perhaps have some really quite strong neg- negative thoughts or connotations with uh, nuclear power, and I think, I mean, obviously they may have been around when. Chernobyl, Fukushima, and all that type of stuff. I mean, obviously, that's still a burden that the nuclear industry has to carry around with it. Um, but I do believe that within the last 10 years or so, the industry itself has been an extremely safe industry. I mean, I was talking to someone a couple of months ago, and he was providing me with some statistics that really blew my mind in some way. He was saying that if you considered, say, the last 12 months or so, how many people have, have died as a result of um, nuclear incidents or accidents or something like that? And the answer is zero. And he says, well, you turn that around, you say, well, how many people have died from, you know, particulate stuff coming out of coal-fired power stations? And it's literally millions of people. I mean, people need to start understanding the implications of these coal-fired power stations and understand the benefits that nuclear can can give to the world energy. I mean, we talk about greenification, and I think that's really, really important. And everyone talks about that. But I think there's also a general acceptance or realization that in terms of just the, the overall global increase in energy demand, as you know, we see a company's GDP go up, we normally see the energy demand go up as well. So not only is there a greenification of the energy requirement, but the total demand for energy in the world is also starting to increase as well. And you want to make sure that when you're bringing on new energy supplies, that they meet, they meet the requirements. And I know talking to even my kids and all that kind of stuff now, they recognize the importance of CO2-free power and all this stuff. And we're hoping to see that younger generation is going to come through and start to push it and really get some of perhaps some of the older people or maybe a little more stoic or a little less um, willing to change to actually see what some of the new opportunities are. What what about you, Wayne? you agree with that? Nuclear is advanced, um, available, uh, safe. Uh, it is the safest form of energy uh, electricity production that the globe has. Uh, you just can't compare uh, it to any other any other uh, form. Even you know, wind and solar have higher uh, mortality rates associated with them than nuclear does. Um, so I see here in the United States a huge. Uh, uh, trend towards towards the embrace of nuclear that that we haven't seen in years, and this is the first time in my my lengthy career that that uh, I really feel um, you know welcome to to be speaking to audiences about the advantages and and the attributes of nuclear power and the industry that that I supply with fuel. Um, this is this is a strange new day in that way. I mean, for for many, many, many years, it seems we were apologists about what we did. And and today uh, in the United States, and and I think trending around the world, uh, the embrace of nuclear power as the pathway uh, to to a greener um, and and cleaner environment, um, it's being understood. So, right, you're all Aussie companies. So do you speak to Aussie politicians and uh, give them that education? Because... They're not pro-nuclear. They're not pro-uranium. It, it seems. Um, I mean, Greg, you're 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 there in, on the ground. I mean, do you, have you seen a sea change in the mentality? Is there still resistance there? In, in, in short, yes. So what, what started to happen about three years ago was at a federal government level in Australia, definitely the the, um, the willingness to consider 
an alternative energy source in, in modern nuclear. So, for example, there's a white paper being published through the federal government in late 19, which said we'll, we will evaluate generation three plus reactors plus small modular reactors for potential future power in Australia. So that's the first time that's been documented. And that, well, that's the, the Liberal government, not the Labor, but nonetheless, uh, that, that's one of the first times it's been done. The second thing is you're constantly seeing now different groups around Australia that are enhancing and evaluating the same thing and saying exactly as Keith and, uh, and Wayne just said, uh, nuclear power is a carbon-free energy source that's really got to be a mix and a backup to these other sources. So there's more and more groups. There was an article in the, the Adelaide Advertiser today exactly on that topic from the group. Uh, and the third thing is we're now seeing, and I've only just seen this in the last 10 months, I think, ESG funds coming in to invest in uranium plays. So we now have at least a couple I know of at a small way, and they've talked to me about how we operate, what we do. I mean, we emphasise the work we do with Indigenous groups in a big way in Arnhem Land and have done for many years. We're now starting that on the, on the ground with uh, pastoral owners in Wyala. Make sure that we, we add value before we even start to try to advance the project as much as we can. And that's a modern approach to values that, that any company has to have. Now, that combined with the carbon-free power that the ESG funds are thinking about now is bring them into uranium. So we're starting to see ESG funds invest in uranium. But do you, do you, oh, sorry, I'm going to just stick with you, Craig, on, on, on this, because it's kind of interesting to me that, you know, the Aussie government, well, you, we, you know, I think everyone read about the, uh, the submarine debacle with, uh, <laughs> you know, so the, these are nuclear-powered uh, subs not not containing nuclear missiles, but so the Australian government seemed to be moving some way because that was a previously a diesel contract. They're moving some way to accepting that the energy from nuclear is safe or sa- safer than they perhaps had previously wanted to uh, concede. So. Is there going to be change in the near term? So lots of conversations. You, you told us lots of conversations going on and lots of education going on, but are they going to move? You know, we, we, we've seen Queensland very well, There has to be something to move. Right. There has to be something to move. For example, for the Australian government and the military services here to be able to have nuclear power vessels in ports, there has to be a change in the regulatory arrangements federally, first of all. To be allowed to have nuclear reactors in, that has to mean an effective change. The other thing that's going to influence this, and, and uh, um, uh, Wayne and, and Keith would know this, a big part of the expertise that is running the civilian nuclear fleet in the United States in particular, but also around the world, comes from expertise developed in the military. Guys who are submarine operators, vessel operators, they, they react their engineers on vessels. They move in to the civilian nuclear industry. So here we've got a ready-made way of getting trained people ready for a future civilian industry in Australia. And that's also being uh, discussed and emphasised now. So I I think that change from the diesel-powered subs, which actually were nuclear French subs being redesigned for diesel, by the way, um, that change to now the new technology out of the US is going to create that opportunity. It will mean there will be you know, quite different nuclear reactors from the general power reactors, but nuclear reactors within the shores of Australia. So that is going to make a difference in the cycle going forward. Brilliant. Um, Keith, with, with regards to, obviously you don't face those sorts of challenges uh, wh- where you are. Um, 
what do, what do you see as the, the main challenges for you, uh, you know, over the next 12 months until you get into production? What are you concerned about? Um, I think one of the things that, and I think this may be common across a number of projects, is actually source of labour. It's one of the things that we are starting to have a think about now. I mean, I think we're in probably a little bit of a different situation, certainly than Wayne and Greg are, in that being in Africa, in a relatively poor country, with not a lot of skilled labor around, is something we're starting to try and get our heads around. I mean, obviously, when Paladin was operating the Calacare asset, there was a significant amount of expat staff uh, used in that. Um, I don't think we can get away with no expat staff, but obviously, from a cost perspective, we want to try and get the number of expat staff down as low as possible. I try and use as much national employees or regional employees and how we're going to do that is something we're trying to get our heads around at the moment. Should we be implementing training programs, education programs, and all those types of things even earlier than you may consider in a normal project? I think that's something we're trying to get our heads around at the moment. Okay. I think that is a kind of, well, not, not just uranium. I think there's, there's a lot of shortages of you know skilled staff across across many of the uh, commodities that we're talking to. Wayne, obviously we spoke two or three weeks ago about some of the technical work that you've been doing, but obviously with the with the Biden administration and very pro-green energy, um, is that having any direct benefit to you other than people just being conscious of it? Uh, well absolutely. Um, you know behind the scenes the US uranium reserve is still um, getting a good support uh, and, and is moving forward, um, you know, we think that that will be a, a catalyst in, in the next fiscal year that, that the Department of Energy will be releasing um, a request for proposals from the capable uh, uranium producers in the United States for, for purchasing. Um, y- yeah, we've, we've focused on our technology, uh, advancing a new tech for us. Uh, we're the first company in the United States moving a low pH um, in situ recovery rather than the alkaline in situ recovery uh, chemistry. And, you know, with that comes the set of challenges of understanding how to implement the low pH on the project. But rather than waiting for um, the restart um, decision, we've we've been actively pursuing, you know, test work, uh, both in the laboratory and on the field scale level to demonstrate the low pH chemistry efficacy and and, and techniques so that we can put our best foot forward when we make that field, uh, uh, that final investment decision. So um, new tech has been a big part of the, the peninsula story. And, and I'm really happy to say now that we feel that we have a really good um, um, mind around um, the, the things that we want to achieve with the new technology and how we will go about it. Okay, I want to switch that, guys. I want to switch this up to uh, you know the, the investing part of this story because obviously we've seen a, an uptick uh, in most share prices once at the beginning of this year, and obviously recently with Sput. If I'm a retail investor, a family office investor, this kind of slight reset that we've seen at the moment is that bringing this back to more reasonable levels? Do we think the froth is now out of the market, or is there a way to play uranium investing between now and the end of the year? Uh, I'll go to, go to you, uh, Greg, if I may. Look, I, I think uh, there, there has been a, a rather rapid run-up in the, in the in the very rapid buying that Sprock did. We know they absorbed virtually all of the uranium out of the market as of about, I heard, 10 days ago. There wasn't much spot left at all, uh, and people started buying UF6 instead of spot, was the rumour. 
But um, I think that's been reset a little bit. There's, there's um, particularly as things change, their NAV comes down, their, their financing goes a little bit less, therefore they're buying more steadily and smaller, which is what they're doing. So, so yeah, there's a little rush, a lot of excitement with it, and it took it where it was. Um, the, the resets we've all had in our share prices um, have still set us all up higher because it's shown that there is a shortage of supply in the short-term market. As, as Wayne said before, there's definitely a shortage of supply in the short term. So that's, that has caused some uh, nuclear utility buyers to start to come out and, and uh, you know, have those direct communications that they do with uh, producers and potential producers, and I'm, and I'm sure uh, everyone's been contacted on that basis or is aware of that. Um, whether that translates into long-term contracts straight away, because uh, many times, uh, as, as we know who've been in the market a fair time, you take a, a few times to have meetings and relationship discussions and understanding of uh, the utilities want to have an understanding of your project, where it's at, and, and then be able to settle and, and, uh, and do some business. Um, they won't necessarily come out for RFPs if they be, uh, in, in a very public manner if they believe they can achieve with direct discussion. But, but you know, there's already been evidence of some. Uh, I've, I've only heard a rumour that there might be a reset to the long-term price coming up soon, um, but, but let's see where that goes. And that, that obviously those sort of opaque transactions have to find their way through to the market with some sort of firmness to be able to be reported. So I, I agree with what Keith said before. The prices are not where they need to be for projects to get long-term contracts as yet. But there is such shortage of supply that ultimately we believe those prices have to move to where the, the projects can be supported. I mean, Keith, are you, are you, you're relatively near, near-term producer here. So are you being approached by utility buyers in, because they are a little bit nervous, a little bit uncertain of, of this space? Because they're the only ones who've really been in control up until now because they hold, everyone else is uh, very public about what they think people utilities should be doing and utilities don't say anything. So utilities know everything, everyone else are just guessing, right? So are you having conversations with these guys about prices which suit you guys? I mean, you, you know, are, are, is it basically, I guess what I'm asking is, is it moving from a buyer's market to a seller's market? Yeah, I, I think, Matt, we've started the, the discussions. I don't think we're at a point now where we're talking price, to be honest. We've, um, I think as we mentioned in one of our previous interviews, we appointed uh, Dr. Robert Rich, who's over in the US and Massachusetts to help us on our sales side. And he's been in contact with a number of US and Canadian utilities to effectively reintroduce Calacara and introduce Lotus as a new company to the player. And he's building up the relationships with them. And we have seen a few requests for proposals, but we haven't bid on anything yet. It's we think that you know there's still some probably some other producers out there that have got lower costs and could come in with lower numbers than what we could. So we're we're building up our database. We're starting to get an understanding of what the requirements are. We think from a timing perspective, we might be in quite a good position because I think we could be producing by 2024. And that seems to be the gap that most of the utilities are looking to start filling now. Uh, we're really keen to do some off-market discussions. I think we touched on this ESG a little bit earlier. And certainly some of the initial conversations I've had 
it would look like the utilities are really keen on dealing with companies that have got good ESG profiles and good ESG scores because they obviously want to improve their supply chain. I mean, that's one of the, the ways that you improve your own ESG profile is by making sure that you're using suppliers that have also got good ESG profiles. So similar to what Greg's been talking about in terms of working with communities and all those types of things, we're busy on those type, you know, those activities as well to try and get a better ESG profile, which we think will help us in our negotiations. But as I said, we haven't started talking price yet. We're still in those introductory phases. I find that, I find that really surprising because you're a heavily regulated industry for obvious reasons. But the, the ESG component for you being what the, the, the social license or what, what, what precisely, which boxes are they looking to tick? I think there's obviously the environmental side. Sorry, just the environmental side is obviously an important one when we're dealing with nuclear. And I think us specifically being in Africa, the social license to operate is another critical issue as well. So we want to be shown to be working with our communities, uplifting our communities, providing you know, funding, education, training opportunities, and even working with the government to try and improve, improve Malawi as in general. I think that's the things they want us, they want us to, to be doing, and those are the things that we want to do as well. So, Weren't all of you guys doing that before ESG turned up? Yes, of course. You know, yes. all, of, all of these companies have uh, good governance. Uh, I, I think you know, you're going to find that in this space, and, and there's absolutely no doubt that we work in a regulated you know, environment. Um, we are environmentally sensitive. Uh, we have, you know, I think, I think solution mining, uh, you know, or in situ recovery was one of mining in the mining industry's answers to, um, you know, the, the impacts that you see from, from conventional techniques. Um, so, you know, in, in the United States and, and really generally, we, we have to follow strict environmental guidelines. At the end of the day, our mine site is re- released for unrestricted use and, and we're responsible for getting it to that condition. So we have high levels of ESG um, uh, compliance. And really the challenge for the companies now is to com- communicate that into the market, uh, finding the, the proper um, uh, self-reporting ESG channels uh, is still a little bit fuzzy in the world. Uh, you know, where do people turn to see the your ESG score? You know, how do, how do we get that ESG uh, score communicated to that uh, spot uh, where people are looking? That's that's right now the challenge. Uh, more than more than actual uh, checking the boxes. Of, you know, we all follow we all follow very high uh, um, principles. Okay, and, and just one, one final just one. Add on to that as well. Sorry, if you just add on to that, I think Wayne's 100% right. I think we all have been following all these rules, but the conversations have probably been between the, between the companies and maybe the regulators or something like that. What we need to do now is to try and get that message out to the general public so that they can see. And I mean, even though an ESG score sounds like a pretty basic thing, at least it's an easy mechanism for the public to understand and to be able to measure a company on its performance. And I think that's, that's really been, been the big change over the last 12 months or so. It has. I, I guess 
I'm waiting to see if there's some kind of standardization to any of this because everyone reports on different components. And that may be by dint of, you know, jurisdiction, geography, the nature of the business that, that they're in. Um, so we, we are hearing the words ESG from lots of companies because it's the, it's the buzzword of, of the moment. But you guys have been doing it for a long time, but maybe labeled it something else. I think is, is, is the point I'm trying to make. Just, just one last one, actually. Greg, we'll, we'll, we'll go right around the houses here. So what's your advice to investors? Buy the dip. Well, I have a, uh, a, um, a rule where I never tell people when to buy, when to sell, or whether to buy, whether to sell. What I do is I say what we're doing, who we are, what we're doing. The, the, key, the key things we're doing in our business is, is attracting um, experienced people back into it. And, and I agree with what Keith said uh, and Wayne's alluded to as well. You've got to get the experienced people back into the business who are there. But all bring up young. So we're, we're, as a very early starting, we're starting to recruit a graduate geologists. We'll start to look at a graduate um, processing or hydrogeologists as well. And, and the interesting thing about it is you've got to really change your dynamics for the style of project you have. If you've got a hard rock project, you need certain skill sets. If you've got an ISR project, and this hurts me to say this as a mining engineer, but the mining engineers of ISR projects are hydrogeologists. They are the people who understand the, the mechanisms and the leaches and, and the and the fluid flows. So you've got to get the right skill sets that match the project and, and that you've got. So, so we're, we're busy doing that and, and we're having good success and we'll have, we're still recruiting, so we'll announce further success going on. Um, along with getting, uh, there's a, a real boom in all sorts of exploration in Australia at the moment, uh, not just in uranium, but in nickel and copper and gold and some rare earths and a range of metals. So the hardest thing to do right now is actually getting um, geophysics crews and drilling crews with their equipment. And that's also because you've got cross-border restrictions within Australia. Um, this is something that, that, that the others may not have the same effect with. But So there's quite strong state governments in Australia. They still control how the transitions work. So we are being impacted and having some delays in getting access to some drilling equipment. We will be drilling this year at Samphire, which is good. But that's the sort of things I tell people. I say, this is our path. This is what we're doing. These are the things, and we put out a release just a week or two ago on the status of these things. So I'd rather do that. Here's where our strategy, that's what we're going to do over the next couple of years, and here's the steps and give updates. That's the best way to attract uh, investor interest, I think, um, rather than rely on the dips. The, the investors themselves will choose when they want to come in. I'm glad you got the irony of that question. Um, the, Keith, what's your experience of the past tell you about how people should play this going forward? What should they be looking at? I suppose I mean, my advice for the, for the general investor is really try and get a, a level of comfort in the uranium market. I think there's a lot of news that comes out of certain sources that it's quite reactionary in some way. And I think any investor needs to build up his own um, idea or concepts, whatever it is, in terms of the uranium market and how he sees it going forward or she sees it going forward. And once they've built up their own view of where that's going to go, then I think there's an opportunity to look at the various companies out there. I think there are a number of companies that probably, if you look at their market cap and you compare it against perhaps something as simple as their project NPV or something like that, they're probably already at value maybe, or maybe a little bit overvalued. And there's other companies still out there that are still undervalued. 
And those are the ones that if I was a general investor, those would be the ones I'd be looking at on the back of having a good understanding of the uranium market. Because you don't want to use general, you don't want to be jumping in and out of stocks. I'm always of the view that you get into a stock and you stick with it for a while with the intention that you get value by staying in the stock over a long, you know, over longer periods of time. Brilliant. Okay. Um, and uh, Wayne, if we're finally with you, you're, you're all ASX. Oh, I think it sounds kind of good. Sorry, lost you there. Um, you, you're all ASX uh, companies, but do you think you've got an unfair advantage by having a US asset? Uh, that may be so. Um, we have uh, we have some U.S. catalysts. We have some, uh, you know, like the uranium reserve. Uh, we have strong support now in the United States, and we're in a geo geopolitically stable environment. Um, you know, we we know um, our regulatory environment. We're fully licensed. We're ready to go in that respect. But you know, I guess um, you know, circling back to to the conversation. You know, to our long-term investors, um, you know, the Uranium's long-term investors, thank you. Um, I'm very happy that your conviction in our space is finally being rewarded, um, you know, with, with an uptick in price. Um, to the people who are just becoming familiar with Uranium investment, um, I want to remind you uh, that, um, you know, we're coming out of a 10-year bear market. And that uh, uh, the uranium stocks today, even though they have appreciated in price, uh, are largely still undervalued in reflection to historical contexts. Uh, we are closer now uh, to, to valuations that, that we saw in the past, but uh, just like uranium, we have a long ways to go before uh, we're really seeing uh, valuations that are proper. And, and that uranium reference, look, 10 years ago, the price of uranium, the spot price of uranium was $70. Today, we're talking about a spot price that's $45 or maybe $50. We're still quite a ways away from where we were 10 years ago. Uh, we are coming out of a bear market and we have a long run ahead of us. This is, this is just the start, in my view, not, not the finish. I think we can all agree with that statement. Um, gentlemen, I appreciate your time today. Uh, we've had a few technical issues along the way. Um, but, you know, three great stories, which I've enjoyed listening to. Um, I hope to be able to speak to you all again uh, soon and uh, enjoy the uranium run. It's, it's, uh, it's very, very exciting times. I think you'll agree. Uh, so thanks again, guys. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.